All right. We have our split sermon brought to us today by Mr. Sean Witt, entitled Exercising. Exercising. Love and Compassion. Mr. Witt. Thank you, Ron. You don't have to worry about any calisthenics or doing uh, any push-ups or anything. Well, originally I had another message planned, and my message was going to be on being prepared. Well, I guess God didn't want me to have that one prepared, because uh, yesterday he prompted me to prepare another message, so <laughs> it's not going to be on being prepared. So, like I was saying, before yesterday morning I'd planned a totally different message, but as I was praying, the words came into my mind, exercising love and compassion. It came to, into my mind, and I felt compelled—excuse me—I felt compelled to change my message. Let's examine the word "exercise" to begin with. When you exercise, it's hard work. It causes pain. It's not easy, and like I said, there's pain involved, especially if you haven't used those muscles in a while. But time and effort is required to develop strong muscles. If you want to have strong muscles, you have to exercise. You have to be working on them. We have to be developing the strong muscles of love and compassion. Each and every one of us that comes through that door has a different story to tell. And if we were to meet on the street, a lot of us, we probably wouldn't be friends. But God has a plan and a reason for bringing us all together. It's not to learn, excuse me, it is to learn from each other's differences in life circumstances that God has called us from. This is a work of opportunity for us to exercise. Love and compassion for our fellow brethren. And for the best part, we have a personal trainer. His name is Jesus Christ. He's to help us. He's going to help us do the exercising of love and compassion. Over the last few weeks, I've noticed that we've had an average of about 70 people every day, you know, every week. And this is encouraging. God is calling more and more people into our flock. And we have families which are expanding as well. And you can tell by looking at Mandy and uh, Amanda as well. They are expanding. And... <laughs> Of course, it could be just from Thanksgiving, but I don't know. <laughs> and I'm sure they're going to beat me after services, so they'll be working on their muscles. Um, <laughs> so anyway, there's more opportunities for us to have compassion for each other because we're having more people come into the door. Our church is growing, and it is exciting. As society continues to break down and times get harder, those coming into our fold are going to be needing extra help. And we need to be equipped to be able to help them. We may not come from the same backgrounds. Our opinions may be different. But God expects us to work together using his Holy Spirit to grow in his grace and knowledge. Like the old adage says, until you've walked a mile in another man's moccasins, you have no idea what their struggles are or what they're going through. But we can help each other by trying to understand what somebody is going through. It's very easy to judge a situation without having all the facts or thinking that we have all the facts. 
The only being who has all the facts is God. A person or family's trial could be, excuse me, the only, yeah, the only being that has the facts is God. A person or a family's trial could be for their own personal growth, but what if it's more than that? What if your personal growth, what if it's for your personal growth, or what if it's for our growth or the growth of the church as a whole? You may wonder how someone else's trial could possibly be for your benefit, but perhaps God is using it to see what you would do, individually or collectively as a congregation. Perhaps someone is out of work because they were not doing a good job at their work. Or perhaps somebody is out of work because um, God wants to see if you'll judge them for their work ethic or if you'll help them out with a burden of getting food for them. Maybe they're short on food and he wants to see what you'll do if you'll step up and help them. Perhaps parents need help with parenting skills. Or perhaps God has allowed children with special needs to increase within our congregation to see if we'll judge the parenting or exercise love. Compassion and support for those families. So there's a lot of different things that we can exercise love and compassion about. There's a lot of uh, challenges in the society the way it's going. Let's turn now to John 13, verses 34 and 35. John 13, verses 34 through 35. A new commandment I give you, that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. How did Jesus love us? Of course, he died for us. But what else did he do that shows his love for us? We can look for examples of how to fulfill his, this commandment, things Jesus did for us that we can do for one another are the following. Number one, he temporarily took a job that was beneath him so that he could, we could be a part of his family. Number two, he prayed for us. He sacrificed his time. Four, he fed people who were hungry both physically and spiritually. He listened. And he acts as an intercessor for us. And seven, he forgave and he wept. How can we love God and Christ if we don't have love for one another? In addition to the things just mentioned, love and compassion requires education to find out how we can help one another. One way is to get education. One way to get education is to talk to the person who is going through the trial. Listen with a non-judgmental heart. We must pray for a non-judgmental heart and a non-condemning, excuse me, we need to pray for a non-judgmental, non-condemning heart. We cannot have it our own way. Remember, the heart is desperately wicked. We have to ask God to open our hearts and our minds to see people the way that God sees them. They have been put in our path for a reason. What if we're the only support system that these people have? What we say and do can dramatically impact someone's life, either for the better or worse, or the worse, yes. To get the gravity of what I'm talking about and how much your words and actions matter, consider this. What if someone in the congregation, one of us here, passed away tonight? 
And while clearing their estate of personal items, we happen to come across their journal. And in their journal, it happens to say, boy, the only thing I wish is I had that person's approval, or if they accepted me, if they loved me. One of us, what if they were thinking they wished that we had loved them and felt accepted by us? You'd have to live with that knowledge that you had the power to do something about this, but you didn't. And you may also have to answer to God for that. How we treat one another is a direct reflection of how we love God. For he said, if you love me, keep my commandments. We just read one of these commandments in John 13, verses 34 through 35. Without gaining proper education about what is going on from a person who is going through it, it's very easy to make a wrong assumption or be dismissive. Unfortunately, like possibly many of you, you've had a personal experience or non-informed judgment made past due to a lack of understanding or sadly a lack of a desire for the person to understand. There's a lot of people in our congregation who have food allergies. Some of the food allergies include stomach ache, gastrointestinal upset. For others, it's a rash, both physically visible reactions, and ones people readily accept. In our son's situation, Samuel, the only reaction he has for allergic foods, or, excuse me, the only reaction that some allergic foods have caused for him is a negative change in his behavior. No rash, just rash behavior. <laughs> And you can definitely tell when he's gotten into something he shouldn't have. He's like, ah, like the Hulk at times. But um, this would be considered an invisible disability. And this is just one of the many invisible disabilities that may exist in our society in which we live. Without the full medical history, it was very easy for people to make the wrong assumption. The view is a lot different from the outside looking in. I don't mean to bring our situation to focus with my family, but rather to shed light on just how easy it is to pass what seems like a completely logical and rational judgment on a situation that you really know nothing about. But what if your judgment is correct? What then? Are you justified in your negative feelings or condemnation toward that person or persons involved? Let's see what the personal trainer has to say about that. Let's turn now to John 8, verse 11. But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning, he came to the temple. All the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who was caught in adultery. And placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in adultery. Now the law of Moses commanded us to stone such woman. So what do you say? This they said to test him, and they might have some change to bring against him, some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote on with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, Let him who without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground again. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, 
Where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Rather do I condemn you. Rather do I, excuse me, rather do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. Notice the woman caught in the act of the sin. There was certainly no need for additional education in this situation. She was caught dead in the middle of the act of the sin. It didn't matter why. But even then, Jesus said that he did not condemn her. But he told her to go from there and sin no more. It has been speculated that he wrote down in the sand the sins of the people gathered around there. It makes sense that that would be. Take a minute and just think of some personal sins that you may have that could have been written down there in the sand. It's starting to feel a little uncomfortable if you would think about the things that you have done that could be written down there as well. Thankfully, God promises to remove our sins far away or as far as the east is from the west. We need to take our elder brother's cue in this example of how he showed us love and forgive one another and thereby follow his command by loving each other as he loved us. So we've learned that in order to fulfill Christ's new commandment, we need to gain education and offer forgiveness. We also need to encourage and uplift each other and show compassion, especially to our little ones, both physically and spiritually speaking. You know, even the disciples needed to learn this. Let's turn now to Matthew 19, verses 13 and 14. And then people brought little children to Jesus for him to place his hands on them and pray for them. But the disciples rebuked him. I wonder, why would the disciples rebuke him? One commentary that I turned to stated, it states that Jesus here reiterates his teaching in Matthew 18, uh, verses 1 through 6, which his disciples had apparently forgotten. And like their culture, they think children should be seen and not heard. Children were low-status dependents. They had no tr trust. Excuse me. They had to trust adults and receive what they provided. And the disciples did not want their teacher interrupted. And Jesus... Disciples did not want these children um, low in status to deter Jesus from his more important matters. And that can be referenced in Matthew 19, verses 13 as well, if you want to reference that. Later, lest Jesus be delayed in his missions to Jerusalem, crowds tried to silence blind beggars. It seems that in both Matthew 19, chapter verse 13, and Matthew 20, verses 31, as a parallel message in Mark, disciples and crowds all alike fail to understand what Jesus' kingdom is really about, and it's about caring for the weakest. Then another commentary I came across suggested that either they thought it was below their master to take notice of little children, except anything in particular ailed them, or they thought he had toil enough with his other work and would not have him diverted from it. Or they thought in such matters, an address as this would encourage all the country, that would bring all the children to him, should he never see an end of it. Because they would just want to keep bringing all their children. So that's how the disciples felt about all this. But let's look at what Jesus had to say about this. Jesus said, 
picking it back up in verse 14 of Matthew 19, Jesus said, Let little children come unto me, and do not hinder them, for the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. I have read this verse many times, and for whatever reason I've never caught this before. The fact that not only did Jesus say to let the little children come unto him, but he takes it further and says not to hinder them. According to Oxford's dictionaries, the word hinder is a verb defined as creating difficulties for someone or something, resulting in delay or obstruction. So if you put it in this context, if you were to insert it, the definition of the word into the Jesus statement, it would read, let the little children come unto me and do not create difficulties for them, resulting in delay or obstruction of them coming to me. That is a pretty profound statement. And remember that it can be applied for both physical and spiritual ones, spiritual little ones. Before I had a son with special needs, I was quick to judge other people. You know, I'd be in the grocery store and I'd see somebody with their kid being unruly and crazy and, you know, doing stuff. But now that I've walked a mile in another person's uh, moccasins, I have more compassion for people that I see struggling with their children. It's easy to take a snapshot in time and judge for lack of parenting skills or, or abilities, etc. The same can be applied in a variety of other circumstances as well, besides just parenting. What about the person who comes to church 30 minutes late all the time? It may appear like poor time management or lack of respect, but you don't know what they're going through. Perhaps they're taking care of uh, the neighbor's elderly parents and the person isn't available to be there until you know, a half an hour after services has started, so they arrive a bit late. You know, they might be helping take care of somebody else. Or the person's clothes are wrinkly every week. You assume they don't have enough time to iron them or they don't care, they just show up that way. But maybe they've been living in their car for the past few weeks and are having money troubles. Or the brother or sister in Christ you offended, who, excuse me, or the brother or sister in Christ you offended greatly a few weeks ago, but you had uh, no idea because you haven't talked to them about it. The problems with this line of thinking aside from being ungodly are twofold. If we allow ourselves to get stuck in a negative pattern of thinking, it's very easy to not only be judgmental but condemning of others, which is likely a result of a decrease of the communication of the person. Um, if we are the recipient of the judgment of condemnation over time, we'll likely stop attending church altogether if we're not careful. Or at least distance ourselves from hurtful parties. If we allow this to occur, we are ignoring the advice found in Hebrews 10. Let's turn there, please. Verses 24 through 25. And let us consider how to stimulate one another in love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembly together, as in the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Encouraging one another and showing compassion does not have to be difficult. It doesn't need to be some grandiose gesture. A great example of encouragement happened with my wife, Kim. She was in the grocery store, 
and Samuel is having one of his classic uh, meltdowns caused by numerous factors. She tried calming him down. Uh, nothing seemed to be working. This was during the time we were trying to figure out a diagnosis for what was going on with him. We had no idea. Uh, but we did know that it wasn't normal. It was beyond the realm of just parenting and um, you know, following God's laws, disciplining him because it wasn't working. But during the meltdown, Kim was becoming very self-conscious and embarrassed and felt like all eyes were on her in the store. Not to mention the frustration of once again not knowing you know, what the cause was. At that moment, a lady came over to her. A complete stranger came and simply offered her five words. The words of encouragement were, you are doing a good job. And this happened over five years ago, and she still gets choked up talking about it. It just really meant a lot to her that this woman would come over to her, just watching what was going on, and was compassionate and gave her some kind words. It really, it really helped out the situation. It was just what she needed at that moment, not condemnation. A kind word and reassurance goes a long way in all situations. All of us here to need to encourage and lift up as each of us as much as possible. Each of us have our own tailor-made cross to bear. Each of us have difficulties. And they're, they're all different. We have different difficulties. And what is hard for me to say, it may be easy for you or vice versa, we just need to help each other. But hard as it is, and God, you know, God calls the weak and the broken of the world to excuse me, to comprise his family, and we need to help each other. All right, now we're going to turn to Peter. Let's go to First Peter, chapter four, verse eight. We are told, above all, love each other and deeply, because love covers over a multitude of sins. This is the ultimate way that Jesus showed his love for us, by his shed blood, pouring out over and covering our sins. If we are able to be Christ-like and be his bride, adorned in white linen, this is the ultimate way in which we must show our discipleship and love for our Savior, by covering one another's sins with our love. Therefore, as it says in Revelation 19, verse 7 and 8, let us rejoice and be glad and give the glory to him. For the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. It was given to her to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. Let us make ourselves ready by following Jesus' new commandment by exercising our muscles of love and compassion towards one another. <clears throat> 